So I'd like to talk this morning about uh, inquiry and investigation and continuing that theme that we um, explored last time. And inquiry and investigation are these um, wonderful qualities that bring a sense of freshness and openness to our practice. They can bring um, tremendous energy. It's really the energy to, to look, to see more, There can be a quality of interest and curiosity. And really, we come to see our lives more as a kind of opening to mystery. An opening to the unknown. We move away from the habitual. We move away from the the rote ways of experiencing the habitual ways, the ways that may be more fixated. And so this morning I'm going to talk actually a little more briefly than I had imagined. (laughs) Uh, But I want to leave some time for discussion and exploration because uh, we started last time with the theme of inquiry and investigation. And I know some of you during the last week did uh, practices that we explored last time. And how many people did some practices and have some reports back from the real world or whatever we call it? So, so I want to leave some time for that. And I, I am reflecting that um, this spirit of inquiry is something I have very much learned from both my mother and my father. So it, this is a kind of a... Um, expression of gratitude for how that quality of uh, inquiry and investigation has been um, part of my life from the beginning. And I want to um, communicate and energize that that quality in each of us, and I think in myself too, because as I often say when I give talks, uh, you should listen to what that guy says. So I'll just review a little bit of what we explored last time, and some of this would would cover uh, what's on the handout. Uh, Last time I spoke about how the quality of inquiry is both really crucial and it can be confusing for us, that we may have come to meditation because our minds were overly active, because we felt dominated by thinking, because um, it was very hard to work with our repetitive thoughts, and particularly our repetitive neurotic thoughts. I'll speak for myself. <laughs> uh, and, and so the quality of inquiry and investigation seems, maybe at first glance, a little bit different. It's working with uh, thinking, with inquiry, with asking questions. And doesn't this just... Uh, activate the mind more? Or what should I do if my mind's pretty busy and overly busy? Is inquiry and investigation a good idea? And it's an, it's an important question <clears throat> because as we saw last time, um, the quality of inquiry is one of the factors of awakening. It's one of the factors that the Buddha spoke about as both a quality that moves us closer towards the awakened mind and heart But it's also the expression of the awakened mind and heart. And it is this quality of openness and uh, a sense of curiosity and ability to look more deeply, 
to see more deeply and so forth. And yet we can remember that the, the whole model of the factors of awakening or the factors of enlightenment is expressed through these seven qualities. The first, mindfulness, which is a balancing factor, which is said to be always helpful, always valuable. When in doubt, be mindful. And, the, and then there are three energizing qualities and three stabilizing qualities. And the energizing qualities include inquiry and also include um, effort or manifesting a lot of energy and also the qualities of rapture and joy. And these are taken to be qualities which really help to give us more energy, very much needed for this practice that we do. The three stabilizing qualities are tranquility, the quality of stillness, concentration, the, the gathering of the attention, and then equanimity, the ability to be present with a, and balanced with the whole mix of things, much like in our, our end of sitting hearing of what was difficult and what was uh, celebratory. And the Buddha gave very specific instructions. He said that the mindfulness is always helpful but that we should use particularly, we should cultivate particularly the energizing factors when the mind is sluggish. And if the mind is sluggish, it's often not so helpful to cultivate tranquility, concentration, and equanimity that we should work to bring about. And so inquiry is one of those factors that if we're feeling stuck or if there's a certain rote quality to our meditation or if, we just, or if we're just sitting there trying to get to some relaxed state, which many of us do in meditation. We, we use the meditation almost as a kind of way to get to a peaceful state. And that's helpful, but it can be missing things. And so the, when we feel a little bit stuck, that's when we want to call on inquiry. And the Buddha also says that if we're feeling overly, in his language, overly excited, we might say with a lot of thinking or w- with a lot of things going on, restless, or then it's helpful to work with the stabilizing factors of tranquility or concentration or equanimity. And it's not so helpful if we're really overly thinking about things all the time to say, okay, well, let me just add inquiry to the mix, that that would not be so skillful. So uh, I I think that guidance is good. It really helps us to, in itself, it's a kind of inquiry to say, what is my practice like? What would be helpful now? That's also the quality of inquiry. But it's really important to know that because we'll be, I'll be exploring, as we did last time, some tools and techniques for inquiry. But if we're, our minds are really restless and overly active, it may not always be so helpful to, to use them. And, and that uh, some, of the, some of the tools of inquiry really require a somewhat, a somewhat, a relatively stable mind or a relatively quiet mind. Otherwise, we just stimulate the repetitive thinking that brought many of us to the cushion in the first place. So that's, that's kind of a caveat. But it's important to see that this quality of inquiry is there right from the beginning and it's the quality of an awake being. Uh, an awake being is curious, is looking, is fresh. It's like the, that, that way in which we, when we're deeply mature, we also in a, in a way are like the, the fresh glance of the child. And I I was thinking of this moment that uh, I was thinking about when I was thinking of freshness. I was thinking of a moment when I was um, with my nephew 
And I think it was a time when I was, my brother was, uh, as a musician, was away traveling. And my nephew was like, I don't know, a year or a year and a half. And we were there. And for the first time, he saw and recognized the full moon. We were out in the backyard, and he was looking, and the full moon was there. And I said, full moon, or something like that, full moon. <laughs> and he said, wow, you know, with, with the, the wow of a very, very young child. And it was, that stayed with me. And that's, there's something like that quality of, that's, that's the kind of freshness that we can look for in the inquiry. And then there's also this beautiful passage in the Kalama Sutta, which I've uh, um, given to you in the handout, where, as I mentioned, the Kalama people lived at a crossroads uh, in India, and they had a lot of spiritual teachers come through. I mentioned it's a little bit like the Bay Area. You know, they had weekend workshops every, you know, all the weekend workshops you could possibly fathom, you know, um, all promising great wonders And no doubt at that time, some of them with high prices, right? Just do this weekend workshop and you'll have the tools you need for the rest of your life and, you know, no money back guarantee (laughs) and so forth. And and so you can see this in the kind of question. And they were that the Kalamas, uh, they came to the Buddha and they said, uh, Lord, there are some priests and contemplatives who come to Kesaputta where where they lived. They expound and glorify their own doctrines, but as for the doctrines of others, they deprecate them. Uh, That would raise some flags right in the first place. They revile them, show contempt, and disparage them. And then other priests and contemplatives come to Kesaputta. They expound and glorify their own doctrines, but as for the doctrines of others, they deprecate, revile them, show contempt for them, and disparage them. This, they leave us absolutely uncertain and in doubt which of these venerable priests and contemplatives and which of the are speaking the truth and which ones are lying. And then the Buddha gives this very profound response, which is a kind of invocation of inquiry. It's, it's really a statement that we could say is in praise of inquiry, in praise of investigation. He says, yes, Kalam, it is as proper that you have doubt, that you have perplexity, for a doubt has arisen in a matter which is doubtful. Now look, you Kalamas, do not be led by reports or tradition or hearsay. Be not led by the authority of religious text, nor by mere logic or inference, nor by considering appearances, nor by the delight in speculative opinions. Oh, that would be nice to think about. Oh, um, and so forth. But this is a radical statement already. So far he's saying, don't, don't rest in tradition. Imagine that, 2,500 years ago. You know, there, there are few statements like this in the history of the world religions. There are very few like this. Nor by the idea this is our teacher. But, O Kalamas, when you know for yourselves that certain things are unwholesome and wrong and bad, then give them up. And when you know for yourselves that certain things are wholesome and good, then accept them and follow them. And further in that passage, he talks about really see what's connected with developing freedom. Look carefully at your experience and see what's connected with suffering and what's connected with freedom. And on the basis of that really close examination, then <coughs> agree upon that, that, this, that this makes sense. And so this, this very powerful invocation right at the center of our practice to inquiring, to looking carefully. Last time I, I talked about three basic ways to inquire, and I want to add two more this time. 
Uh, and I'm going to, it's going to have to necessarily be brief. And I was thinking that it'd be a wonderful day long to have it on inquiry with like, you know, I'm essentially mentioning five different ways to inquire and to have each of them give each of them an hour or two and, and to, to have the practice. Because ideally I would love to take us through each of them and have the experience of that. And we did a little bit of that in the guided meditation last time and what we did for those of you who were here right at the beginning of the meditation. So the first, the first approach is really using the tool of mindfulness. In a way, it's um, letting the tool of mindfulness help us to inquire more deeply. And I was, as we did in the guided meditation at the beginning, there, there are a few ways we can look at this. One is to simply keep on trying to ask, uh, what's present for me? What's in my present experience? And so there's a way in which it's a kind of inquiry, especially in our daily life, but also in our meditation, just to keep asking, what's happening? What's going on right now? Just to keep coming back to that, that kind of question. What's really present? And then just to tune in, to have that inward attention, and really to notice. Uh, and to, we can help ourselves by the usual techniques of mindfulness, that is to notice, to label, to name what's happening. But it's a really valuable tool in daily life, particularly in, in the rush of events. You know, I'm at a meeting. I'm feeling uh, a little bit uneasy. Something's happening in the meeting that I don't feel so good about. And then we can, then we can use a kind of inquiry and say, Donald, what's happening? You know, let me go inward. What's really going on? And say, oh, mm, something, I feel a little nervous. Or, no, it's... It's actually anger. <laughs> you know, I don't like what just happened, and then something's rising up, and then and then you know, and so forth. But it's really to to use the mindfulness to really help us see what's happening, and we can do that just moment. It's very simple, and it's, but it's a kind of inquiry just to notice what's going on. And last week, I believed I channeled one of Sylvia's ways of doing this. <laughs> We're, you know, we're, we say, oh, I'm suffering. Oh, yes, dear, you're suffering. <laughs> you know, and, and, and why am I suffering? Oh, let me just look, and, and so forth. And, we, and this, is, this is a powerful way of using mindfulness as inquiry. And then further, when we're in the meditation, when we're noticing certain states arising, we can just give them more attention. It's really to say, okay, I am angry right now. Okay, there's anger, and it looks like it's here for a little while. Let me just look at it. What's it feel like? What's it like in my body? Let me just look. What's it like in my mind? Because so much in our practice and in our lives, certain states come, and they become emergencies. Oh, anger. Oh, got to get rid of that. Oh, I'm, you know, got to do something. But with the process of inquiry, we invite a really a looking. We invite just to see, to see what's there and to notice. And the, the assumption is that when we look more clearly and we see more deeply, we'll be able to act more wisely and compassionately. That otherwise we're more acting through conditioning or our reactions. And so this first kind of inquiry is a very accessible mode of inquiry. We can really do it during the day. It might be just to ask what's happening if we feel a little bit off-center or confused. And it's, a, it's powerful that mindfulness has this uh, power to really be deeply penetrating into experience. The second kind of uh, inquiry that I mentioned last time 
I call deep listening. And we could, again, we could take, uh, we could take hours. You know, and, and I have in my home, some of you have been there, this um, Tibetan woodblock of Milarepa sitting in the mountains with his hand to his ear like this as a, as a metaphor for spiritual practice, for, for the Dharma. Let me just listen. Let me just notice. Let me not be so quick just to think, oh, this should happen, or oh, that's happening, or, but let me just listen. And this quality of deep listening and often it's a listening beneath the surface. And sometimes, because mindfulness has that ability to penetrate, it can actually take us more deeply. But the, the method that I gave last time was a method, particularly one technique, was something we can do when there are repetitive thoughts, for example. There are a lot of repetitive thoughts happening, and one kind of deep listening tendency, or, or technique, I should say, would be when there's a lot of repetitive thoughts and we've noticed it, and it's gone on for a while, sometimes we can shift our attention to our body or our hearts and keep our attention there and listen, not with the idea of figuring things out, not with the idea of thinking we know what should happen, but a kind of listening, you know, listening, what's really there, what's present. And sometimes when we do that, we can get in touch with emotions or something, because usually repetitive thought is driven by a complex of emotions and needs and so forth. And we often are out of touch with that. We don't know. You know, in a similar way, and I've mentioned this in some of the talks on, on judgments, sometimes we can hear harsh judgments of ourselves or others. And there's a similar way, and again, it takes practice and it takes a relatively quiet mind, but there are ways that we can listen for what's beneath the judgment. I can, you know, I can say, oh, that person did this or that, you know, and I can be really harsh towards that person. And if I, sometimes if I, and again, the technique of going to the body and the heart is a beautiful one. We, we call it sometimes the dropping down practice. And we stay there, and I can sometimes say, oh, um, oh, I feel, actually I feel sad. I feel sad, you know. And the example that I gave a lot in talking about judgments is when I was working with a position, with a person in a position of authority who it seemed to me uh, didn't listen to me. And I would, I would find myself going into reactive judgmental thought. But when I listened more deeply, I could actually notice that there was a kind of pain of not being listened to. That actually... I could follow it. It actually took me quite deeply. That this, this, this deeper listening can take us into a kind of doorway where we can actually discover quite a lot. And it's something that as we get good at it, we can work with actually working with other people. Someone says something nasty to us. And we can listen. What's beneath there? We can listen. What's beneath that? It's, it's a hard practice because our defenses come up usually, right, with something like that. But there's this quality of deep listening, which is possible. And the third tool, and I'm conscious of going through these quickly, especially for people who weren't here last time, Um, but I'll I'll get to the the fourth and fifth in a a moment. The third practice uh, of inquiry is to use a particular teaching as a kind of lens to help us look more deeply, to inquire more deeply. And the example I gave was using the teaching of the Four Noble Truths last time. That we can, again, we can use this in daily life or we can use this in the sitting. 
You know, I can, I can notice in a sitting, oh, I'm sitting here, oh, there's some kind of suffering, you know. You know, maybe there's, um, there's a suffering related to something, maybe my, my body's hurting, you know, my knee's hurting, and I'm, and I'm suffering in relation to that. And, and then I can, I can ask, um, what's the cause of the suffering? Or I can first, I can really investigate the suffering, and then in that investigation, I can sometimes notice, well, there's a distinction between the actual sensation that might be there in my body, and then my tightening or my reaction to the sensation. That's, that would be, inquiry would, would discover that. You know, in the way that I often mention that doctors say that 80% of what people experience as pain is not the original sensation, but the reaction, the tensing, the contracting around the sensation. And that's even more obvious with emotions, isn't it? You know, that we have something happens and we, we often don't actually feel what's happening, but we go off on reactions for the next three days. We have a difficult interaction with someone. And so, and so if we were working with the four truths, let's say we had that difficult emotional reaction, we would say, let me really notice what's there with, the, with what the suffering is. Oh, there's some kind of... Because often it, it, this would be connected with the other inquiry practice. Often there would be a lot of reactivity. And then if I said, well, let me see what's beneath there. Oh, there's some sadness and there's some pain. That person didn't listen to me. I don't feel, I don't feel heard. I didn't feel seen and so forth. And then I can notice how all the thinking is a kind of uh, following up on that. And then I can do, use the second truth and ask, is there a way that I'm, that I'm uh, holding or that I'm tightening? Like, oh, my, my reactions, I'm kind of holding to a sense of, oh, I'm the aggrieved one. I'm right. You know? And, and can, I, can I let go? into just being present with the, the sadness or the pain. It doesn't mean I don't respond in an intelligent and possibly forceful, forceful and conceivably righteous way. <laughs> but but it's, the, it's the investigation that helps me really to sort things out. And then in that moment I might see, I'm, I'm, oh, I'm really just getting really agitated. And I might ask the third truth, can I open to... Can I, uh, is there a way I can let go of that kind of tightening around, I'm the right one, that person's the wrong one? Can I, can I let go of that? Is there a way I can let go? And then fourthly, the um, fourth noble truth, this, this set of practical steps called the Eightfold Path that let me learn how to do that. And we could do that just in, a, in five minutes of meditation. When we're sitting there and we find some suffering, we could work with that teaching as a way to inquire more deeply. Where I was thinking also we could use a teaching like the, um, like the ethical precepts. Working with the ethical precepts can be a powerful way to look deeply. You know, I can ask, um, do I really speak with right speech or with wise speech? And we've talked about that a lot here in the group. And I can really say, let me really inquire into my speech for the next week. And it can be a powerful lens to really look very deeply and see what's there. You know, we can work with a teaching and say, let me really just keep noticing how I speak. So, knowing that that was brief, <laughs> I want to I mention the fourth and fifth, and maybe we'll need to do this some more. We'll, we'll, we'll see where we are at the end. The, the fourth approach, I, I call the approach of radical questioning. And it's actually, again, it's actually more consciously using language to to go more deeply. 
And this is used in both Western and Eastern traditions. In fact, right at the core of Western culture is the work of Socrates and Plato, which is, which is about radical questioning. It's about using questions to really look more deeply. And, it's, and it's, there's a whole 2,500-year philosophical tradition, which at its best is a form of radical questioning. What's helpful from the connection of radical questioning with our practice is that we can use, at times, radical questioning as a way to work coming more out of a silent mind. Because as I mentioned, it's really important to be able to distinguish repetitive thought from using inquiry. And, that, and, that, and in my experience, this, this works best when the mind is somewhat quiet, and then we can ask, ask questions. Um, one of my most powerful experiences of working with a kind of radical questioning came when I worked with uh, Christopher Titmus, who uses inquiry quite a lot, and some of you have probably worked with him. And probably, I don't know, I think it was close to 10 years ago, eight or nine years ago, I was doing a retreat, and I, I, I loved using these forms of inquiry. And my mind was fairly quiet, and he gave me the inquiry question, how are you free? How are you not free? And the way I worked with this, and it sometimes works better in a retreat, the way I worked with this was my mind was quiet and just about every, you know, maybe every minute or two, I would just ask, how am I free? How am I not free? And then I'd say, mmm. <laughs> and I would just sit like that. And over time, and I did this for about 10 days. Some eyes get wide. <laughs> uh, I did this for 10 days, and what started to happen was I started to get a kind of inventory, and I particularly worked with the question, how am I not free? And I started to get, I would ask that question, how am I not free? And I would get a kind of inventory of, um, of the main ways that I was not free. They'd be ones like, I'm not free when I'm afraid of pain. You know, and, and this would come out of, out of the silence. You know, it would be kind of a deep response to the question. I am not free when I am afraid of pain. I am not free when I think I am better than other people. You know, so this was getting, getting deep. I am not free when I am afraid of death. So out of the silence came something deeper. It wasn't like, I am not free when I am... You know, my car is not working right or something. <laughs> um, and I, ha- I came up with a list of about 15 of these. And it was actually, it was like we could say it was a, it was a uh, map of the bars on, on my cage, in a way. And you might, you might want to do that kind of inquiry. And at a, that was about halfway through the retreat. And I had identified all these 15. It felt like really helpful to actually write them down and name them. These were... These were in a way, we could say it's actually connected with the last kind of inquiry, but this was like naming some of the uh, ways that I was caught. We might say even naming some of my beliefs. You know, or, and, and I kept on sitting with that. And at a certain point, I had my list of 15, and I saw I've actually had experiences with every one of these 15 that lead me not really to deeply believe them. In other words, I have seen through all of these 15 uh, beliefs, we might say. 
or I've seen through, I've, there, I don't ultimately believe any of them. Because I've had experiences, you know, where I could be with pain or I could, you know, not be thinking I'm better or experiences even in which I didn't fear death at all. And at a certain point I said, you know, I kind of, the mind took a while, but I, I, I saw I didn't believe in any of them. And then I said, I don't believe in any of these. I'm free. There's a way in which I, in that moment, I, I connected with a quality of freedom because nothing that was holding me really had any ultimate standing. And the energy just was intense, you know, at that moment. And I actually went off, to, I was doing this retreat at IMS in, in uh, Massachusetts, and I went off to the woods and I started shouting, <laughs> I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. And I did that for quite a while. <laughs> and, uh, and then I worked with Christopher later and said, well, let's stabilize that. <laughs> but there was something that happened from, from that asking of questions, that both in the... Um, uh, and I, I worked for the last part of the retreat sort of stabilizing that, but it's a powerful, you can get a sense it's a powerful tool. It, it needed that silence to work. And it um, led me to a lot of insights I wouldn't have had without the questioning. It had a certain power and focus. And sometimes I've also, also used that kind of technique, which, is, which some of you know is used in other traditions. I actually had a lot of quotations from... Ramana Maharshi and from the Zen, in some Zen traditions, they, you sit there for three months asking, what is this? What is this? And I'm making a little bit of fun in the way I present it, but it's actually just as serious and powerful as that kind of question I was asking. And it can also be just asked in daily life, you know, like, what is, what is really happening right now? Kind of similar to the other questions. What am I believing? What am I looking at? And I'll just mention a little bit briefly the, the last approach, because in a way it really needs, it can needs further time. But it's really related to what I just said. And this is what, what I would call the deconstruction of fixed beliefs. And some of you may know these techniques. They've been um, used sometimes by, some of you may know the diamond approach with Hamid Ali, uses tools of inquiry like asking these kind of questions. He uses a technique sometimes where one would one would repeat the question over and over. And some of you, how many people are familiar with these, these techniques? Where, where one might ask, um, you know, um, how are you attached to yourself? And then you give an answer. And for about 10 minutes, you do this with a partner. And it's fine, thank you. How are you attached to yourself? Thank you. How are you? And you give an answer. How are you attached to yourself? And, and it, it basically uh, is feeling a little bit of discomfort already. <laughs> but it, it has, that has the potential to, to go quite deeply and, and to really start to penetrate into deeper beliefs. Some of you may know the work of Byron Katie. How many people know her work? You know, where it's also, it's, it invites us to really look at a fixed belief that we might have. And really to ask, and for her it would be, to, it, it might be, you know, like the judgments that we make of ourselves or others. Like, you know, um, you know, I might make the, the judgment, that person is really blah, blah, blah. And then um, in her method, the further questioning would be, um, do I really absolutely know that this is true? 
And it'd be a kind of inquiry to see how much we're sort of embellishing things. And then she would, then she would ask, um, what does it feel like when I inhabit that belief? What's the inner experience of that? And we might, again, it's not so much having a predetermined answer, but it's a really a, a chance to inquire. And then she says, what happens if I reverse the belief? What happens if I change that, if I reverse it? So I, you know, so I, I might say, not that person is like this, but I'm like this, blah, blah, blah. And then what is, and, and so it's a method of kind of going more deeply and looking. And this, this is used in actually a lot of uh, traditions, particularly in Mahayana tradition. Some of you know the work of Nargajana, who, who basically has this method, which I, I can't work with in detail, where he says, take any view that you have, that you dogmatically hold to. And he has a method whereby if you actually investigate that, it'll be shown to imply its opposite. It'll lead to a contradiction. Basically because all of our core concepts come in in pairs. There's up and down, right and wrong, left and right, and so forth. And you don't have the one without the other. And again, I'm, I'm telescoping this. But it's a, it's a powerful method. Maybe a, maybe a more um, accessible way is it actually comes from the teachings of the Buddha where he says, be careful of getting attached to views. And so this last method, we'd actually try to illuminate, what are my views? What do I really hold tightly to? So part of the investigation is just to name those and then to uh, actually look more carefully at them. And I think I'll close with this passage from the Buddha where he, where he, where he offers this technique of inquiring into views. One who thinks oneself equal to others, for superior, for inferior, for that very reason disputes and is, is attached to views. But one who is unmoved under these three conditions, for that person the notions equal, superior, and inferior do not exist. The sage for whom the notion equal and unequal do not exist, would that person say this is true? Or with whom should he dispute, saying this is false? An accomplished person does not by a view or by thinking become arrogant, for he is not of that sort, nor by holy works, nor by tradition. He is not led into any of the resting places of the mind, meaning any of the attachments, any of the attachment to views. For one who is free from views, there are no ties. For one who is delivered by understanding, there are no follies. But those who grasp after views and and opinions, they wander about in the world annoying people. (laughs) A fly has just landed right on that passage. Because then you can see that. It is just... (laughs) Better read it again. For one who is free from views, there are no ties. For one who is delivered by understanding, there are no follies. But those who grasp after views and opinions, they wander about in the world annoying people. I cannot close this book. (laughs) So, So let me end right here. And There's a lot more we can say, but thank you for your attention. We remember that we practice not just for ourselves, but for others. And may the fruits of the morning 
be offered for the benefit, the healing, and the transformation of all beings. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.